0: Let's get into John chapter 11 together today. This is really a transition in the Gospel of John. Uh, Just so you know, in our schedule for the year, we've been working through the Gospel of John. As we come to God's word and we say, Lord, we want to know who you really are, not just what humans think about you not just what the popular philosophies are, but what God says about himself and what we see in the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of misconceptions like the book that the young adults will go through, but who is Jesus really? And there's a lot we find out in this eyewitness account, the Gospel of John, that Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate, the door. I am the good shepherd. And here in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. So we find out who Jesus is by his own lips and his own actions. John 11 is a transition in the book because up until this point, it's been the ministry of Jesus that's been taking place. But now really in chapter 11, it begins the passion narrative. It's the journey to the cross. It's the culmination of Jesus' ministry and his calling. And in the time frame, this is during the third year of Jesus' public ministry. In the location, it's all moving toward Jerusalem and the conflict that will result in his crucifixion, which is not unplanned and it's not uh, by humans that are coming in and deciding when that will be. It's when he chooses to lay down his life. So that's where we are. Uh, As we've got about two months left in John, some of this we've already covered coming up in chapters 12 and 18 and 19, we covered that back at Easter time because that's an appropriate time to talk about resurrection. Uh, But just so you know, the months of August and September would be a great time for you to begin to really uh, strengthen your daily time in the word by reading sections and portions or the entire gospel of John, right? So I'd really encourage you, build that discipline. A new school year is another one of those fresh starts where you go, you know what, let's get on a better schedule, let's get a plan, let's spend some time in God's word, reading it, praying, and then saying, God, how do I apply this? What do I do about it, right? So in John 11, it's an exciting story about Jesus' interaction with a man named Lazarus and his family. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You can read that story in chapter 12. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. A couple things there in this intro in, in verses 1 through 3, just so you know, Bethany is only about two miles away from Jerusalem. So the, the story and all the energy is moving toward Jerusalem and that coming conflict and crucifixion. Uh, it's, it's on the road that heads toward Jericho. It's just east of the Mount of Olives. And you know you hear that there's an entire family involved. It's Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. I love the message that, that the sisters send to Jesus the title, the designation that they give to your brother. His identity is the guy that you love. Isn't that beautiful? They're saying, Jesus, the guy that you love is ill. The one that you love is ill. What a a beautiful way to think about a family member. What a beautiful way to think about yourself. Do you look in the mirror and see that? Did you, this morning when you were primping and prepping to come to church, did you look in the mirror and go, hey, there is the dude that Jesus loves. There is the lady that, yep, there you are, the lady that Jesus loves. Did you see that? You know, and it's a personal relationship that Jesus has with each of his children, right? Not just in a general sense that Jesus generically loves the world. It gets personal. John 3 is very true for God so loved the world, loved the world, there it is, that he gave his only son. So in a general big picture sense, that is so true. That's why Jesus came. But I hope you can appropriate that personally and grab it and internalize it and say, I am the young lady that Jesus loves. I'm the old retiree that Jesus loves. We are the couple that Jesus loves. This is the family that Jesus loves. And get a hold of that at a personal level. And so they had that. They they felt that particular and personal love of Jesus. That was a part of the invitation that prompted Jesus to make this journey to Bethany. So their expectation was we have a a brother who's sick, Jesus loves him, he's going to come and fix this problem. This is the same Jesus who just opened the eyes of the blind man. And so he can definitely deal with this illness that our brother is experiencing. But when Jesus heard it, verse 4, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you know the end of the story of Lazarus, you know that there is some death along the way here, right? He actually is going to die. So Jesus' words here could be a bit confusing when he says this illness does not lead to death. What we're getting a glimpse of here is the eternal perspective that Jesus has in contrast to the temporary fixed-in-time perspective that we function in every day. And so Jesus has gone, oh yeah, there's, there's resurrection life at the end of the story. Relax, it'll be good. And it's all gonna bring glory to God. It's actually not gonna shine the spotlight on Lazarus and how cool he is and what an awesome testimony that he's gonna have. He'll probably be doing school assemblies and going all over the nation writing books, right? No, Lazarus is a secondary character in this story. It's all about the glory of God and the glory of his son, the son of God, Jesus himself. So the healing that is to come it, it's, it comes after death, but death is not the picture, and neither is Lazarus. Well, now Jesus, verse 5, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, loved the whole family. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that kind of make you scratch your head a bit? He loved them, so he didn't go. He hung out for a couple more days, until Lazarus was not just ill, but good and dead. Uh, It doesn't seem like a very loving action from our temporal perspective on things, right? Like, you'd think if you really love somebody, you would hurry up and get over there. They're in need, they're hurting, they're at the hospital right now. Get over there. Get the lasagnas cooking and start showing some practical love here. And yet Jesus stays where he is a journey away from this Bethany family, and he waits. Well, why? Well, he's just told us. Because God is about to be glorified through this circumstance. The Son of God is about to be elevated through the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, and that's a good thing. How many of you look at the sorrow and the suffering and the pain as good things in your life? Right? oh man those of you that even raised your hand a little bit, you are some mature believers. You've, got, you've already got John 11 down pat. You know, we want to bypass that. We want to skip it. We want to cut right to the healing, the resurrection, the life, all the good stuff, the provision. And yet, there's times that God is glorified through the suffering and sorrow. And Jesus knew, you know, I could come and just heal Lazarus, lame. Or I could wait until he's good and dead, starting to stink. And then I could come and show that I am the resurrection and the life. And through this family in Bethany, open the eyes of many to see me for who I really am. And Jesus knew that there was a greater blessing in store for them to be used to glorify God in a big way. And so he waited for two more days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Man, there's just some, it's just a great narrative. There's just a lot of rich uh, dialogue going on here. Um, so we'll pause before he gets to, to Bethany and kind of unpack some of those verses that we've read together. Well, you know, the disciples are, are, are worried. They're nervous to return to the same place where Jesus just... a the previous chapter has escaped from being stoned because of proclaiming that he is one with God, that the Father and and the Son are one. And so now they're saying, really, you seriously want to go back? This does not seem like a good idea, Jesus. This decision could result in your death. Now, in one sense, it's a prophetic message coming from these blockheads who don't really know what God is saying through them because, yeah, that's exactly what is going to happen. Jesus' mission is about to be culminated in Jerusalem and we're heading into that passion narrative that's part of the story that terminates in the cross or does it? There's a resurrection on the other side of death. And so all of the glory and all of the joy is on the other side of the sorrow and suffering that's to come. Here we hear Jesus speaking kind of both in a natural, physical sense, but also with some hidden supernatural truth packed into it for those who have ears to hear, right? So in, in their mind, you know, they would look at 12 hours of nighttime and 12 hours of daylight and they you know, they, they would talk about the first hour, the second hour, the third hour. They didn't adjust their clocks for daylight savings time. They didn't break it into 24 pieces like we, we do. So with the changing of the seasons, the the amount of daylight would shift and, and flex as it does for us in this part of the world. Uh, but they would just have a shorter 12-hour period of daylight, right? So the, the those 12 hours of nighttime are when the light of the world, the sun, is not... Showing So in a physical, practical sense, this clicks in people's minds, right? Yeah, if the sun is not out and you're trying to take a walk, you're probably going to get tripped up. You're going to walk in darkness. It's when the light is there that you can walk with confidence and safety. But in another sense, Jesus has already identified himself as the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he's tapping into some of those same truths and ideas with his disciples right here. Guys, don't be afraid about the people with the stones in Judea. You, you are with the light of the world. It's going to be fine. Follow me. Let's go together. Let's, let's travel and bring ministry and healing to this Bethany family, our friend who has fallen asleep. Uh, we don't use that phrase to talk about people who have died, but that's a common phrase. Phrase in the Bible to talk about those who have fallen asleep. You see it back in the Old Testament, uh, usually like in the books of Kings and Chronicles. At the end of a person's life, it'll say, "And he slept with his fathers," and that's a biblical way of saying he died. So, so it's not an uncommon idea, even in their history and their tradition at this time in history. Um, and yet, it's not a mistake for them to also kind of be hearing that in a natural way, to be thinking, "Well." Um, We're scared about going to Judea. We know there's people there that are trying to kill us. The report we heard put the idea in our heads that he's just ill, not dead. And so we've got that rolling around. And now Jesus says he's sleeping. Let's hear it in the way of he's not actually dead. He's just taking a rest. So don't, don't be too hard on the disciples. There's some explanations for why they could hear it that way. And so Jesus flat out just says, well, guys, look, what I meant is he's dead. And it's time to take that journey. In fact, I'm glad that he's dead because your faith needs to grow. Your belief needs to expand. Your trust in seeing God as glorious and his son as high and exalted needs to be lifted as well. So I'm glad not just for his family who's about to experience something miraculous or the Jews that are looking on, but also for you guys, disciples, who've been with me and heard my teachings and seeing the miracles all along the way, your eyes are about to be opened in a new way. And Thomas, now what about him? So we, we call him Doubting Thomas because at the end of the gospel, he's the one who, he, he has to come and put his hands, uh, touch, touch the, the scars in Jesus' hands and, and side to really kind of, you know, I, I'm not going to just believe I need to see with my own eyes. And so we call him Doubting Thomas you know, and there may be some of that doubt in this verse. It, it may be in a sarcastic way. All right, let's just go with him that we may die too. I read it as courage. I read it as a guy who's saying, yep, we are going to die. Let's, let's do this. Let's go. Let's roll. And I, I hear Thomas with some courage saying, I'm going to follow after him. In your suffering and sorrow, what do you do with that? Do you, do you face that with, um, without hope, all alone? In only your own strength? You know, leaning on your Facebook world friends to commiserate with you? Is, is that all that you've got when it comes to the sorrow and suffering that's inevitable in this life? Do you stuff it? Do you try to handle it on your own? Do you just turn to people who are also broken? Every one of us is broken. Or in your suffering, do you courageously come to the cross and follow after the one who is the author of life, the giver of life, and you come to him with obedience and surrender and courage and hopeful expectation? And eyeballs that are lifted to see his glory and his kingdom with that hope of resurrection life. And my prayer is as we look at the story of Lazarus, you begin to develop some hope in your own life for those sorrows and sufferings that you face. Man, there is a, there's some beauty in digging into a solid theology of suffering. Don't bypass it. Don't skip past the the sorrow and the death and the four days in the grave because you want to hear the, the good stuff that comes on the other end. Look at what God is doing and growing in you and bringing glory to himself through the pains and hardships of this life. We'd like to bypass that, get right to the good stuff, and yet there is glory to be revealed as we suffer. And even as we finish life well, as we run right up to that finish line, And when, you know, some of us are at your funeral, hearing the stories of, man, this was a hero of the faith right up until they stepped into eternity and got to see Jesus face to face. Those are some stories that inspire the rest of us. So run the race well. Well, there is a good good part of this story in this life, and that happens here uh, as we continue on in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. You start doing the math on this, looking at where Jesus was. Uh, and it was about a four days walk from the other Bethany that he left to, to arrive at this Bethany. And so what basically what Jesus did, he heard the report he's ill, and he waited until he supernaturally knew he's actually dead now. And that's when he started the journey to, to meet Lazarus and to enact this miracle. Um, the significance of the four days, I, you know, I don't think it's so that he could you know, be, he could one-up Jesus. You know, Jesus was three days in the tomb. Lazarus made it four. You know, he set the world record for number of days dead before being re- re- resuscitated, resurrected. Um, not, not resuscitated, scratch that. Resur- uh, risen, risen from the dead, right? And, and it was precisely that idea of uh, resuscitation would be the risk if it was less than three days. So even today in science, there's debate and question of what is death it used to be when the heart stops okay nowadays they they've actually swung it more to brain death is is a more scientific description of what death is because man we can keep hearts beating indefinitely today and even there's times when a heart is beating but there's no other neurological impulses and that's a time when doctors, physicians start talking to family members about donating organs. And so really, even today, we're not really sure what is death. When are you dead? Is it when your heart stops? Is it when your brain stops functioning? It's, that's up for grabs. And, and we're living in the year 2019, and we're still trying to figure out what death is. Well, at this time in the ancient Near Eastern world, Uh, there was also confusion, ambiguity about what is death. And so they had a belief that after three days, that's when the soul really departs from the body. Until then, it's kind of hovering around, may make a reconnection. But after that point, there's decomposition starting to happen. There's no going back at that point. So really, three days is a pretty key number at this time in world history when it comes to what is death. If Jesus had been there only two days after Lazarus' death, if he had set out when he first heard the message that he's ill, instead of waiting two days and then a four days journey, it would be possible that some would say, oh, Lazarus wasn't actually dead. His soul was still hovering nearby and Jesus just resuscitated him. So part of the miracle plan was let's wait until there's some stench and there'll be no doubt that this guy is dead. So Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. That's key. There's going to be a crowd assembled to see what God is about to do. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. We've we've seen that elsewhere in the Gospels of the the personalities of these two sisters. One is always kind of right in there where the action is. The other one takes a more passive role. And so once again, Martha's the one that's going right out. Mary is is remaining seated. Martha said to Jesus, and listen to the faith that she has here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You You see the anguish, the sorrow that she's got. She's lost her brother. And yet, even in the midst of that sorrow, there's faith that's still alive, knowing that Jesus could have healed her brother if he had been there. And more than that, verse 22, Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Well, that's a a, a very... uh, gray statement that can be taken either way, right? Your brother will rise again, and she takes it in maybe the, the, the less hopeful way. Maybe there's a little bit of, of hope and joy starting to spring up in her heart as Jesus says these words, but here's how she hears it. Well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And there was expectation within Judaism of resurrection at the end of time. So she's hearing Jesus kind of giving the same comfort that we give to people at funerals today, right? Well, you, you know, you'll, you'll see them again in heaven. You'll hear that wisdom uh, shared at, at funerals, right? And she's kind of hearing it, taking it in that way. Like, oh, you know, there, there's an afterlife. And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me Shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That's what the word Christ means. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. And there's some truth rolling off the lips of this grieving sister. Right here. She professes and and confesses you are the King. You are the Son of God. In her sorrow and in her suffering, there is a confession of faith in Jesus as the only way. Jesus also, just as he did with in terms of love, you know, not just a generic love for the whole world, but a particular love for this family in Bethany. Not just a generic resurrection life that comes at the end of time for everyone. A particular personalized resurrection that's about to affect your family, Mary and Martha and your brother Lazarus. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. Let me me pause and ask you, have you made a personal confession of faith in Jesus? That's That's a key step. Have you just been around church for a long time? Hanging out with Christians, reading your Bible, have you made that personal confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's pretty key. And He invites you to proclaim that He is the King and declare with your mouth and publicly and in an audible way that other people can hear it He is the King, He is my Savior, He is the Lord. If you haven't done that, today would be a great opportunity right at the end of church to come on up front and have some people pray with you and say, this is the day that I'm going to join Mary and Martha in declaring, Martha in this case, declaring that you are the Lord, you are the Son of God who's coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. Again, that personal Lord and Savior knows Mary as well and sends Martha to beckon her to come to him as well. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, when the the young adults go through the study of looking at who is Jesus really, they're going to have to wrestle with some passages like this because we're really seeing the humanity of Jesus in these verses. Jesus experiences human emotions. deeply troubled moved in his spirit weeping. There's a very human side to this part of Jesus' ministry. You know, he he's it's as if he's going right through the story like any human does without being God who stands outside of time and knows that resurrection is about to happen. And this is where we come up with that mysterious, complicated phrase. He's fully God and fully man. Passages like this. See how he loved him. And and the the reactions of some of the crowd, I don't take it as a snarky comment. I take it as just that sorrow of saying, man, he, he just opened the eyes of a blind man. If only he were here. He could have kept this man from dying as well. There's hope there. There's some faith in Jesus' ability to work and to move. And now we get to the exciting part of the story, including a prayer that Jesus himself prays. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Does this read like a preview of something to come to anybody else in the room here? Right? What do we say on Easter Sunday? He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? That's kind of the historical, traditional greeting on on Resurrection Weekend, right? And there there was a tomb and there was a stone rolled away. We're getting a preview of what's to come. And Jesus says, Take away the stone. But he faces some opposition to that idea. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Here's the prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. This could be a template for public prayer for us, right? Like, there's an authentic prayer between Jesus and God. This is not just a, a show for the people gathered around. In fact, it's a continuation of the prayer he's already been praying. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. He's been talking to his Father all along. It's right in line with everything that Jesus has been telling us in the Gospels. You know, I don't come uh, on my own authority. I don't come seeking my own glory. I come under submitting to the authority of the Father, doing His will, bringing glory to Him. And so it's in it's in continuation of what we've already seen here in John's gospel. And so there's prayer that's already happened to this point. There's prayer now at the moment of raising Lazarus and this miracle that's going to be very public. And yet even in the prayer, there's an acknowledgement and an awareness of who is present. So I think that's a good template for how we do public prayer, right? It's not a show. You know, if you're called to come up and, and lead in prayer before we sing a worship song or, or in, a, in, a, in your life group, you're asked to open the meeting in prayer or ask God's blessing on the meal. It's not showy. It's an authentic, real communication between you and the personal God who knows you and loves you. And yet there's an awareness and a recognition about the, the people present. I hope you pray differently uh, from the microphone on a Sunday morning than you would back in the preschool room when you, when you lead the, the, the tots and twos kids in, in prayer, right? Hopefully you're going to contextualize the prayer into a way that invites them to join into your communication with God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's praying in, in, in continuity with the prayer that he's already been praying to the Father. And then he's also praying in recognition of the people standing around because he knows that something big is about to happen And their eyeballs are going to bulge out of their heads in just a moment. Metaphorically. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 25, there's a prophecy about this day and about a day that comes to all of us. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And we're seeing that fulfilled right here in the story in Bethany, a family that's impacted as the Son of God comes and declares with authority over death, over the grave, come out. It's a different type of resurrection than Jesus. Noteworthy difference there. When, when Jesus is raised from the dead, the grave clothes are still intact, lying in place in the tomb. Lazarus comes out. He's still tied up in those grave clothes. Lazarus is being raised to a you know, 1.0 kind of life. Jesus comes out in a 2.0 body. And that should give us some clue as to what the end of time holds for us as well, if you care to dig into that. Uh, What does that resurrected life look like at the end of time when Jesus comes? Uh, Most of us are not going to experience what Lazarus did. It's kind of a unique uh, story. Now, it, it, it still happens. It happens on occasion. It's not about... The, the glory of that dead person who gets to live for a few more years and then die again, like Lazarus does. In fact, he's not a very key person in the story. We don't hear any dialogue from him. You know, there's no, he doesn't go on a, on a, a public speaking tour after this. In fact, by the next chapter, the, the religious leaders are already plotting, let's kill this guy again. And so that, you know, that's what he has to look forward to next week. Get, you know, go take a good shower, Lazarus and then go hide somewhere because they're going to try to kill you again because now there's a lot of people coming to faith in Jesus because of you. You're out here walking around after having been dead for four days. But what's happened here in the story, we've, we've now seen faith in Jesus in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Now we get a little glimpse, and most of it's implicit. It's not really laid out in the story. We're not hearing the the, the embrace and the excitement and the joy and the reunion. But we can imagine that grieving sisters who now see their brother coming out after getting over the shock are pretty happy to see their brother again and they're rejoicing at that resurrection. And it's good to rejoice in the healings, rejoice in glory that's focused on the Father, when God works in a miraculous way in your life or in the life of someone else, to not pass right over that, but to give glory to him and rejoice that he is a miracle-working God and he's still alive and he's still on the throne and he still does big things and there's still people watching who actually come to genuine faith at times via miracles, Jesus tells us in chapter 14. So don't, don't overlook that part of the story as you also try to develop an eternal perspective on suffering and sorrow, that God is glorified even through that. We're going we're to quickly end out the chapter here in seeing some of the reactions to this healing. So in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Really good politician there. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, John's Gospel tells us, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with, his, with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, before the Passover, to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Man, the key verse there, and maybe in the whole chapter, beyond the I am the resurrection and the life that Jesus proclaims, is that prophecy that unknowingly comes from the mouth of Caiaphas the high priest verse 50 it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish and john tells us he didn't even know what he was saying at that point he was speaking prophetic truth because of his role as the high priest not because he actually knew what he was saying he was what he thought he was saying was let's just kill this dude so that we can preserve our position as the religious leaders, not tick off Rome, kind of keep the peace. It'd be better to you know, um, kill, kill one person you know, f- to, to save the many. Kind of that ethical uh, discussion of the greater good, right? That's kind of his angle here. But what he's actually saying as God is speaking through him is there is a substitutionary sacrifice coming. Someone is going to die. It's either the nation or Jesus. There is death required and it's going to come. And I hope you take that not just in a general sense, but you personalize that. And you realize that when you look at your sin, either you are going to die to pay the price for your sin or Jesus is going to die to cover that sin and take it from you. I hope you get a good, a good view because that, that recognition of our fallenness and our brokenness is what really opens up our hearts for the gospel to be good news. You know, the sad part of the, the lie that's being spread around in our culture today, it's really that sin is not a problem. You know, it's the idea that our sin should be something we're proud about. Something that we brag about and boast about. It's our identity. It's, this is who I am. And then we get friends around us that pat us on the back and cheer us on. But until sin is a problem, until we realize that sin is a problem, how can we open our hearts up to the only solution, the only only one who brings resurrection and life? So that'd that'd be a point of prayer for our community, for our nation. That the eyes of people will be open to see sin as it is. To see the problem of sin. The death that is connected with sin. To, to lose this lie that the enemy is propagating in our world. That sin's not a problem. Sin's an old-fashioned idea. Whatever you're into, go for it. If it feels good, do it. I guess it's not a new lie. It just seems to be more intense today than ever. And so Jesus, uh, Caiaphas proclaims the truth. Jesus is the only substitute for the coming penalty of God's wrath on fallen sinful humans. And, And in saying this and proclaiming this, Caiaphas essentially signs Jesus' death warrant and it begins this whole journey to the cross. Why did John write this gospel? What do we do about this? Why do we hear this story about a dead guy who was raised from the dead? He died again. We we don't even hear, we don't know where he's buried today. We don't know how he died the second time. We don't know when that took place. Why is this little story in the good book that we come to to know who God is and to know how to be with Jesus? Well, thankfully, John tells us the purpose of the whole gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. And we'll end with this. These things are written, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's not just an abstract uh, truth when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It, It gets personal. And he has you in mind, your family, your sisters, your brother, your spouse, your kids. He knows you by name. He's moved when he thinks about you. There's probably some weeping at times when he looks at the circumstances in your life. And he knows exactly who you are. And he says, I love you, and I'm the resurrection and life for you personally. And I gave you my word, and I put my spirit within you so that you can live as my sons and daughters. Can we go to him in prayer today and in surrender? Why don't we stand together? Give thanks to him for his resurrection life. Lord God, I thank you for this assembly of people gathered together to see you as you are, to grow in our faith in you, to believe in your name, to believe that you are the king, you are the son of God, and in so doing, to have life in your name. We thank you for your great love for each of us personally. Thank you that you look into each heart you see Men and women here today, you say, you're my son. You are my daughter. Pray, God, that if the the enemy has blocked our ability to hear your voice, calling us by name, reaffirming your love for us today, that you'd open our ears, that by your spirit you'd draw us once again to surrender to openness to you, that we'd come and fall at your feet ourselves and encounter you in a fresh way. Thank you for the resurrection life that's only found in you. Thank you for hope in the midst of sorrow and grief. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to bring glory to you as you work in miraculous ways in our lives and in those that we love. And we do give you all glory and praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.